Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number nine, Joshua chapter six. We ended our last lesson with Joshua five. And the last paragraph dealt with this mysterious commander of the Lord's hosts who suddenly appeared before Joshua. Now, no doubt this was a manifestation of God and not a regular angel nor an archangel because not even an archangel allows himself to be worshipped. But Joshua bowed down before this being and the being instructed Joshua with the same words and authority that Moses had heard more than 80 years earlier. Take your sandals off your feet because the place you're standing is holy ground. When Joshua asked that being if he was here to fight alongside Israel or was he with the enemy, this sword-wielding apparition gives this strange answer. He says, no. It really was a strange answer and one that we only lightly discussed. The Hebrew sages point out that at least part of the meaning of this being's cryptic response was that he was not under any human authority. He was not here to offer his army to join with Joshua's army, nor was he here to be under Joshua's command. Quite the contrary. This being was the commander of all of God's armies. As I have demonstrated to you in my reality of duality illustration, there are parallel realities that exist. There is a visible physical realm. There is an invisible spiritual realm. These two realms work in concert to achieve God's purpose. God has an army of spirit beings, warrior angels, if you like. And he established at Mount Sinai an army of physical beings, Israel's holy warriors. Now, each may have its own leader. Joshua was Israel's, and it's generally believed that the archangel Michael was the leader of the heavenly army. But over them is the supreme commander, the Lord himself, and that is who stood before Joshua. Now, I have mentioned a few times that the chapter and verse numbers in the Bible were invented and assigned somewhat arbitrarily long after the Bible era came to a close. The purpose wasn't to distort the Bible or to change it. It was merely to divide it up in ways that could be universally referred to and communicated, thereby making the study and the discourse concerning the word more precise, a little easier. But that doesn't mean that chapter and verse beginnings and endings were necessarily chosen in a way that best reflects the end of one story or scene and the beginning of another. Most times I can see the logic and rationale behind how it was divided, but you know, here in Joshua 5 and 6, it can cause us some confusion. There really ought to be no break between chapters 5 and 6. It's one long story. But more than that, the chapter markers make it seem as though the commander of God's host finished speaking to Joshua at the end of chapter 5, and then a new and different conversation was struck between the Lord and Joshua to begin chapter 6. Such is not the case. The same apparition who stood before Joshua in chapter 5 is still speaking to Joshua to begin chapter 6. So that we get the context correct in today's lesson, I'm going to begin reading at Joshua chapter 5.13, and then we're going to just continue right on in to Joshua 6. So open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. 
verse 13, and then we're going to read right on into Joshua 6 and read it all the way through. One day, when Joshua was there by Jericho, he raised his eyes and looked, and in front of him stood a man with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went over to him and asked, Are you on our side or on the side of the enemy? No, he replied, but I am the commander of Adonai's army. I have just come now. Joshua fell down with his face to the ground and worshipped him, then asked, What does my Lord have to say to his servant? And the commander of Adonai's army answered Joshua, Take, off, take your sandals off your feet, because the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Jericho had completed its barricaded uh, gates against the people of Israel. No one left, no one entered. So Adonai said to Joshua, I've handed Jericho over to you, including its king and its warriors. You're to encircle the city with all your soldiers and march around at once. Do this for six days. Seven priests are to carry seven shofars in front of the ark. On the seventh day, you're to march around the city seven times and the priests will blow the shofars. Then they're to blow a long blast on the shofar. On hearing the sound of the shofar, all the people are to shout as loudly as they can. And the wall of the city will fall flat down. Then the people are to go up into the city, each one straight from where he stands. Joshua, the son of Nun, called the Kohanim and told them, Take up the ark for the covenant and have seven Kohanim carry seven shofars ahead of the ark of, the, of Adonai. To the people he said, move on, encircle the city, have the army march ahead of the ark of Adonai. When Yahshua spoke, had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven shofars before Adonai passed on and blew on the shofars with the ark of the covenant of Adonai following them. The fighting men went ahead of the priests blowing the shofars while the rear guard marched after the ark with incessant blowing on the shofars. Yahshua gave this order to the people. Don't shout. Don't let your voice be heard. Don't let a single word out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you will shout. So he had the Ark of Adonai make a circle around the city, going around it once. Then they returned to the camp and stayed in the camp. The next morning, Yeshua got up early, and the Kohanim took up the Ark of Adonai. And the seven priests carrying the seven shofars ahead of the Ark of Adonai went on, continually blowing on the shofars, with the fighting men marching ahead of them, and in the rear guard following after the Ark of Adonai, all the while blowing on the shofars was incessant. Now the second day, they went around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did the same for six days. On the seventh day, they got up early at sunrise and went around the city in the same way seven times. That was the only day that they encircled the city seven times. The seventh time, when the priests blew on their shofars, Joshua said to the people, Shout, because Adonai has given you the city. But the city and everything in it is to be set aside for Adonai and therefore to be destroyed, be destroyed completely. Only after Rehob the prostitute is to be spared and she and everyone with her in her house because she hid the messengers we sent. So you keep clear of everything reserved for destruction. If you bring a curse on yourselves by taking anything set aside, to be destroyed, you will bring a curse on the whole camp of Israel and cause great distress there. All the silver and gold, all the brass and iron utensils are to be separated out for Adonai and added to the treasury of Adonai. So the people shouted with the shofars blowing. And when the people heard the sound of the shofars, the people let out a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, each one straight ahead of him, and they captured the city. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Men and women, young and old. Cattle, sheep, donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had reconnoitered the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring the woman out with all she has as you swore to her. The young men, the spies, went in and brought out Rehob with her father, mother, brothers, and all she had. They brought out all of her relatives, put them safely outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city to ashes with everything in it. 
except for the silver, the gold, the brass, and the iron utensils, which they put into the treasury of the house of Adonai. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and everything she had, and she continued living with Israel from then until now, because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to reconnoiter Jericho. Joshua then made, up, made the people take this oath, a curse before Adonai on anyone who rises up and rebuilds this city of Jericho. He will lay its foundation with the loss of his firstborn son, set up the gates with the loss of his youngest son. So Adonai was with Joshua, and people heard about him throughout the land. <clears throat> Please recall that the reason we started in chapter 5 before moving to chapter 6 is that the same divine being is continuing to speak with Joshua. And the subject is this forthcoming attack on the Canaanite city of Jericho. Now the first verse of chapter 6 explains that the city had barricaded itself inside the thick rock walls and had closed its gates so that none could go in or go out. Now, tried to reveal to you some of the obvious and then not so obvious God patterns that were established in the Torah and they are now playing out in Joshua. And this one, this, 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 this one little verse here represents another one of those patterns. Allow me to momentarily detour, okay, to repeat and perhaps make more clear a fundamental principle about Torah classes approach to presenting the Holy Scriptures. It is that God's truth is best revealed by the patterns He creates. And these patterns form the context and then the boundaries for understanding the meaning behind what is occurring in any given circumstance in His Word, Old and New Testaments. Destroy or ignore the patterns and the truth becomes distorted or even ununderstandable. Distorted truth leads to distorted beliefs, which leads to distorted doctrines. Now, in our modern era, we tend to like things short and sweet, don't we? Okay. Westerners, we Westerners in particular, don't much like taking the long and sure path. We like shortcuts. Okay. But shortcuts of all kinds can give us at times crude and not quite complete views and information because what we bypassed is often where the real beauty and substance lies. I know every time we get up on the on the interstates, my wife says, can't we get off and take the little side paths? I said, no, I just want to get there fast. And she says, yes, but you're passing up all the substance and beauty. It's the same kind of idea. Discovering God's patterns is not a difficult thing. But it is time-consuming. And first and foremost, discovering God's patterns involves the realization that the New Testament is based and dependent upon the Old and not the other way around. The New Testament does not create God patterns. It follows them. Or to use often misused Bible word, the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament patterns. Exactly, precisely, beautifully. And I believe I've shown you dozens, if not scores of these, of examples of these over the past few years. Thus, the standard way that we have tended as Christians for centuries to debate and form our doctrines about various theological topics is often to kind of whip out a favorite verse from here and there in the Bible, usually with very little context, and claim that that's the answer to whatever the argument is. My verse is better than your verse. Kind of a deal. And it's really not the best idea to take a verse or two out of context, or frankly, even a whole chapter out of the context of the book it's in. And it's equally dangerous to take an entire book out of the context of the Bible as a whole when we're trying to form a conclusion. But there is the greatest danger 
when we take what amounts to two-thirds of the Bible and declare it's null and void. And then we not only lose the context, but we lose all the patterns that connect us with the mind and the purpose of God. Sometimes the resulting doctrines are one might, what one might expect when such a process is used. And pertinent information can be distorted. Now I'm going to give you one quick illustration of what can happen when God patterns are destroyed or thought to be no longer relevant. Follow me on this, please. Due to the upcoming presidential election, the faith of particularly one of the leading candidates has caused some concern. He's a Mormon. The Mormons were established early in the 1800s, and at the center of their faith are a human prophet called Joseph Smith and a revelatory angel named Moroni. Right? And the Mormons claim Jesus is their savior. They claim the entire Bible is the true word of God. But they also claim that the prophet Smith and the angel Morani have brought new laws and commands from the Lord, changed and abolished some older ones, and thus we have what they call the Book of Mormon. That is essentially the third, and according to them, the newest testament. Okay. Now, typically, most evangelical Christians gasp, <laughs> and we shake our heads and cluck our tongues at this so-called cult and their reliance on a third biblical testament. Okay. But in reality, they're not doing anything more that what mainstream Christian doctrine has enabled them to do. They're merely the first to take fullest advantage. I think I can sum up that kind of provocative statement in a simple question. Is it possible that God can give his word to his mediator, declare his word to be permanent, unchangeable, and forever, and then he changes it? declares parts of it null and void at a later date. Well, if you're like most evangelical Christians, your honest answer must be yes. Because that belief is central to many of the current doctrines of the church. Most mainstream Christian denominations insist that even though God said many times that all of his laws and commands and principles were forever, he nonetheless ended them with the close of the Old Testament and created new ones to replace the Old in the New Testament. So if that's the case, and the Lord has done this once already, why should we be surprised if the Lord does it again? Why would we be shocked if he were to suddenly declare that all our parts of the New Testament are now changed or even abolished and replaced with the newest testament, a third testament called the Book of Mormon. That essentially is the position of the Mormon church. Okay. Oh, just like Christians who run around with a Bible that invariably has an Old Testament in it, but at the same time, we believe it to be generally irrelevant because of the new. So do Mormons run around with an Old and New Testament under their arm, but believe it to be subservient to the newest testament, the Book of Mormon. You see, that's the slippery slope we buy into when we say that God at one time declared his laws and commands are forever, but then later he changed up on us and gave us new ones to replace the old ones. That's exactly what we're doing when we say that the Hebrew Bible is gone, then replaced with the new. And that we must accept that while God at one point in history gave us the law, declared it perfect and completely doable, 
that with the advent of Jesus, the disciples of Christ were supposedly running around telling everybody who would listen that the law was faulty now, it was bad, it was too hard and had always been, and thus we should ignore it. That same doctrine also says that we must accept that while in the Torah God declared the Sabbath to be holy and permanent, and as a commemoration of the day that he ceased from creating, that in the New Testament it is now all reversed course and declared supposedly through Paul that the Sabbath is actually now a profane thing. It's really all about elemental spirits and that it should be no longer observed. So all Mormonism has done is to take the logical path set down by a certain kind of Christian theology and follow it to its logical conclusion. And that conclusion is the Bible has no patterns in it that the Lord can't change at a moment's notice. After all, if the Lord can abolish or make changes to the original testament that he at one time declared perfect and permanent and then replace it with a newer one, why would anyone believe that at some point he couldn't simply abolish or make major changes to the New Testament, declare its message and mediator to be faulty, and then give us an even newer and better one? That's the Mormon premise. Now naturally I object to that entire premise right, behind this mainstream Christian theology. God has not replaced the old with the new any more than the writing of Exodus replaced Genesis. Okay? The old was perfect. It remains perfect. The new is perfect. It remains perfect. The old is the foundation and basis for the whole world of God. The old is where the patterns are generated and explained. The new follows those patterns. <clears throat> The old set down all the requirements for our Messiah. The new revealed who he is and recorded that he met all of those Old Testament requirements. Therefore, we can be certain that Yeshua of Nazareth is Messiah. Okay. Look, I know this is a topic that bothers many of you and I suspect some of you get sick to death of hearing about it. Okay. In fact, I wish I didn't feel as though I have to bring this subject over and over again. Believe me, I'd rather not. But everything I teach you is from the perspective of a never-changing, living God that means what he says and says what he means. Okay. When he says his laws are perfect, they're perfect. When he says they're forever, they're forever. Because if they're in until further notice, we got a big problem. Okay. As long as I sense his instruction to keep hammering at this, I'm going to do it. This concept that in order to accept Jesus Christ as God and Savior, that we must throw out everything that came before his advent is a travesty. It keeps us in slavery to, to very weak and burdensome man-made doctrines instead of to God and to his immutable patterns and the order of things that he created from the beginning. Thus we see a never-changing and still in effect God pattern being played out and further developed in verse 1 of chapter 6 of Joshua. And it is this. The hardening of the human will and mind towards God brings certain destruction. We saw this with the Pharaoh of Egypt. And now the king of Jericho orders that this fortified city he rules over is to harden itself against God and his people. All avenues of access were closed. All avenues of escape were shut off. The people wanted nothing of the God of Israel. And in reality, all they had to do to have their lives spared was to submit to the Lord God just as that innkeeper prostitute Rahab did a few days earlier. 
but the inhabitants of Jericho had reached the point of no return. There would be no further opportunity for them to escape death, even if they changed their minds. Their fate was sealed. Now, they didn't necessarily believe that. But it was sealed once God's warriors took up their positions around that doomed city. When this verse speaks of the gates being barricaded, it's declaring the permanence of the situation. No changing of heart is going to happen. There is a day not very far ahead of us when this is going to be the circumstance for all mankind. Okay. In verse 2, the commander of God's army speaks to Joshua again and tells him that the outcome of this siege of Jericho is already decided. All the inhabitants of the city will be annihilated. Even the king and his warriors, and often these were spared by a merciful enemy. Okay. Since God has already won the battle in the heavenlies, as attested to by the commander of God's host being there, to explain to Joshua that what Israel had to do um, was to fulfill the same thing on earth, then all Joshua's men are essentially about to do is a mop-up operation. It's done. If they will but follow the Lord's instructions, the city will fall like a house of cards, and you know what? I'll bet those, in, those divine instructions about how this was going to happen sounded about as ridiculous to Joshua and his warriors as it does to us now. There was not going to be any earthly or known battle strategy being played out here. The army of Israel was to march around the city every day for a week doing nothing but blowing shofars. And that was that. No shooting arrows. No climbing up siege ladders. Soon they would just walk over the top of the debris and destroy everything that would be laid bare by a supernatural act. At least that's what the Lord was telling Joshua would happen if he'd be obedient. Well, the instructions were quite simple. They were to march around the city of Jericho one time per day for six consecutive days. Seven priests were to carry seven shofars and blow them during this circular procession. But on the seventh day of doing this, they were to march around the city seven times. Once accomplished, a long blast was to be blown on the seven shofars. And the people were to shout. And the walls would cave in until the city was flat and exposed. Only then are God's people who completely encircle the city to walk straight forward from where they stand and they're to kill all that were still alive. Well, starting in verse 6, we have Joshua do what a subordinate officer does. He takes the orders from the commander, forwards them on to his charges. But here we get a little more detail. The Ark of the Covenant is to be the featured item in this procession. Rather than the most sacred item being held far away, safe from harm, it's going to be in the middle of the column with the warriors of Israel front and rear. This is because the ark is indicative of God's presence. God was not only there in spirit, so to speak. In other words, wishing them well, but from a nice, safe distance. He was there in holy spirit. His actual presence was on the battlefield with them, not simply as an encouragement but as the instrument of victory. Not only the priests, but also the warriors were to blow shofars as they made their daily journey around the embattlements of Jericho. Can you imagine the racket of all those shofars and the commotion and the confusion of the people inside the city? They'd never seen or heard of such a thing before. But another interesting command is also given to Joshua. Do not shout until the day I tell you to shout. In fact, 
other than for the shofars and the noise they make, don't you let a word come out of your mouth. The warriors and priests are to march around the city silently, except for the incessant blowing of those shofars. See, there's a word play going on here that's good to know about. We have the people and the shofars shouting at some point. The Hebrew word for shout is ruah. And the term is applied both, when you see the Hebrew here, to the noise that will come from the people's mouths on the seventh day, and to this daily blowing of all these shofars. We're going to talk about that shouting a little more later. Let's talk about the shofars a bit. A shofar is an animal horn, usually from a ram, but it can be other animals as well. So these are not trumpets, as is sometimes the English translation. These are signaling devices. They're not musical instruments. Okay. The primary um, ritual trumpets that the Hebrews were known to use at the temple were silver trumpets blown by the priests and the Levites. Regular Israelites and their warriors would, be, would never be permitted to blow that kind of instrument. However, it is also known that there were some metal horns used by the Levites that were shaped after a ram's horn. And they were given the rather generic name of Yobel. Now, Yobel is a Hebraism that technically means an animal horn, but more commonly it meant a trumpet or a horn that was used during the Jubilee celebration. Okay. Two kinds of Jubilee year horns were known. Extra large ram's horns, natural ones, and metal horns that had an intentional resemblance to an animal horn. There's, there's a lot of disagreement over exactly when the metal horns, the metal yobel, came into use. So it's hard to know exactly what kind of instruments the, police, the priests were blowing as they were walking around Jericho. However, since it would be at least 50 years before Israel would have its first jubilee, it's my suspicion that the yobel used by the priests at Jericho were but king-sized horns as taken off of a ram. They weren't metal. That's my speculation. Now, shofars were also used in battle like bugles were used in the American military and other militaries until a few decades ago. The purpose was the same. Shofars could make a loud noise heard above the din of battle, and so there were various kinds of blasts um, that gave instructions to repeat, uh, rather to retreat, go forward, close up formation, uh, signaled all kinds of military maneuvers. And like bugles, shofars were used to signal the call to battle at the start of a war. In the Bible era, that's how they were used the most. Okay. But we also see shofars used in connection with the prophets. Either announcing a new oracle of God, or as a warning that destruction and wrath were on the way. Now, likely we are talking about hundreds of shofars being blown as Israel's warriors walked around Jericho. But are we talking here about all of Israel's male warriors being present there at this time? In other words, were there 600,000 men in the column that surrounded Jericho? No. The same term armed men is used here, referring to the troops that marched around Jericho, that was used to describe those 40,000 soldiers from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh that led Israel across the Jordan River. Recall those three tribes had taken up their land inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Their crossing to the west was only keeping a promise to Moses that if they were allowed to have their land allotment on the east side, that they would fight along with 
the other Israelite tribes to conquer Canaan. So these were those special crack troops that would be the vanguard of most of Israelites' battles. The people of Israel were undoubtedly still camped near uh, Gilgal in the plains of Jericho, which was only maybe a half-day walk from the city. Well, verse 12 uses another Hebraism that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It says that Joshua got up early in the morning to lead the men to encircle Jericho. Remember, the term, that phrase, got up early in the morning, is a literary device used to indicate a great zealousness to get to work on whatever task the Lord has assigned. So it's a sign of great merit and honor. Now we certainly see a litany of sevens in this story, don't we? Seven days of circling Jericho, seven priests carrying seven shofars going around Jericho seven times on the seventh day. Now this coupled with the command that the people are to keep silent. That's key to the story, by the way. That the people are to keep silent. Is to show that everything that's happening regarding Jericho is a work of the Lord. And that the people had little to do with it. Seven is symbolic of the works of God, of his perfection. And that's what's being impressed upon both Israel and on the local inhabitants. Well, in verse 16, that day of destiny arrives. And in his zeal, Joshua gets up early in the morning and organizes this, the seventh day's procession. It's going to be an especially long day. For today, the army of Israel, along with the Ark of the Testimony, held upon the shoulders of those priests, is going to compass the shut-up city of Jericho, seven complete revolutions. And upon completing that seventh revolution, all the warriors shout and the shofars blast out a single long note. Or better, as the Hebrew says, the people made a ruah. And the shofars also made a ruah. Thus tying those two actions completely together. Verse 17 then reminds the people of something that they should already thoroughly understand. The city and everything in it is to be set aside for God. This is called the law of harem, or in English, the law of the ban. Now, as with my repetition at the outset of our lesson concerning the continuing validity and existence of the Torah and all the Old Testament. So I want to remind you about this all-important God pattern and principle of harem. It is translated as ban because the people are banned from doing what would be otherwise completely usual and customary and lawful for them to do upon winning a battle. And that would be to take the vanquished people and their possessions and their livestock as war booty. It's the spoils of war. This, however, is God-ordained holy war. And in holy war, special rules apply. Chief among those special rules is the law of harem that makes all war booty the sole possession of God. The booty, including the defeated people, become holy property. Holy property cannot be taken and used by Israel's warriors. Thus, the only way for the Lord to take possession of his holy property, as it is spelled out in verse 17, is that everything within Jericho must be destroyed. All must be reduced to ashes. This, of course, reflects the God pattern that is established in the ritual of the burnt offering, the sacrifice called the Olah, where gifts to the Lord are given over to him by means of burning them up in a holy setting. So this law of harem includes the defeated people, their animals, their possessions, the city itself, everything 
except the precious metals like gold and silver and the available bronze and iron utensils that are to go to, the, to God's priesthood for their use alone as God's representatives and keepers of the law on earth. Now the only thing that was to be spared was the innkeeper prostitute Rahab and her family. This was because she voluntarily submitted to God and helped his people, the Israelites, by hiding those two spies sent by Joshua to reconnoiter Jericho just a few days earlier. Now we need to stop and back up just a tab because there are a couple of God patterns and principles that we hurried over that need to be highlighted. The first one concerns people and the shofars shouting, or in Hebrew, making a ruah. This event is a direct type and shadow for something that is still future to us. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16 we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This, of course, is the event that Christianity has dubbed the rapture. Remember that this event presents two different scenarios for mankind, depending on which side of the fence you stand. If you stand with God and His Son, then this is a wonderful, marvelous, joyful, awesome day when the Lord comes back for us. It's a day of life for those who die to save people but will be resurrected on that day and those who are alive will be transformed to a higher level of incorruptible life but it's also a day of death and dread and horror and sadness and finality for the larger portion of mankind for those who died unsaved for the living who have refused to submit to the God of Israel and his Messiah Yeshua. Those living and dead who were just like Jericho. Closed, shut, barricaded against God inside a shelter that seemed to their godless intellects like the secure way to keep their lives. But it turned out to just be a mass graveyard like Jericho. Those walls had no hope against the wrath of God. Also notice the connection in Thessalonians between the shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. This is exactly this we've been studying in the battle of Jericho. But, you, but now you better understand about the shout, the ruah. What happened over 3,000 years ago in Jericho is going to happen again, but in a higher spiritual plane, I think in the near future. The spiritual shofar of God will shout in heaven just as the physical shofars of God's representatives on earth, the priests, shouted at Jericho. The spiritual holy warriors of God, the heavenly angels and their archangel leader, will shout in heaven just as the physical holy warriors of God, the Israelite soldiers, shouted on earth at Jericho. And what will that shout signal? It signaled salvation for Rahab and for her family who were for Jehovah, but death and permanent destruction for those who were against him. And of course, that is what occurs at the time of the rapture and immediately following. The pattern was established in the Old Testament. It's going to be fulfilled at the rapture. Okay, let me say it again. The rapture does not make a new principle. It doesn't establish a new pattern. It follows and fulfills one that is thousands of years old. It was established in the Tanakh the Old Testament. But that's not all. Notice the principle of Rahab. She was the enemy at one time. 
In fact, she even lived among the enemy, but was still counted as devoted to God and so was spared. Rahab is the pattern in principle for Gentile redemption. Born a pagan, a goy, a Gentile living a pagan lifestyle, but by God's grace, she realized that all the gods of her life had been false. She realized she had no choice but to stand with the God of Israel, and that meant standing with his chosen people. If she hoped to survive what was otherwise certain destruction. But it goes even farther. Verse 23 says that Rahab and her family were brought safely outside the flattened walls of Jericho and placed outside of the camp of Israel. Interesting. But later on, it says that Rahab was allowed to live among, inside the camp of Israel. Okay. The significance of this part of Joshua was meant for our time, for those of us living today. When we first accepted the God of Israel, even under the false assumption that we had indeed replaced his chosen people and so separated ourselves from them, we were indeed ushered to a safe place. We were saved in the name of the Israelite Savior. Yeshua HaMashiach saved us for sure. But this place was symbolically outside of the camp of Israel from a physical perspective. Partially because the so-called early church fathers who were all Gentiles chose a path and a set of doctrines that determined that belief in Jesus meant, it a, meant to be a different and separate religion for Gentiles, even from Jewish believers. Okay. We wanted to be near the part of Israel that we saw most beneficial for us, the Messiah, their Messiah. But we really didn't want anything else. We didn't want to be part of the faith roots. We didn't want to be part of the Torah. We didn't want to be part of the biblical observances or even of them physically. We wanted to be outside that camp of Israel. In proper time, Rahab sought to be and obviously was allowed inside the camp of Israel. This chapter makes a point of it. She began outside, but later came inside. In God's redemptive history, we have arrived at the moment when the Lord has given his Rahabs, we Gentile Christians, the opportunity to live inside the camp of Israel. If Rahab had never moved inside the physical camp of Israel, she would have been completely saved, spiritually and physically, and welcome to live her days out in safety. No problem. But why? When such a greater relationship awaited her, such a greater proximity to the holy tabernacle, to God's land, to God's people, and teaching from his awesome Torah, would she not jump at the opportunity to move inside of that camp and partake of it? Answer, she took the opportunity. And it's recorded here in Joshua. Torah class exists in part to invite you to move from outside the camp of Israel to inside the camp. Your status of being saved or not doesn't change either way. What changes is the depth of your relationship with God and his people. Okay. What changes is that being outside the camp separates you from the blessings of Torah and from being a blessing to the Jewish people, a people chosen by God. How do you make that move? As with Rahab, it's partly spiritual and partly physical. Spiritually, you must reject that doctrine that the church has replaced Israel. Spiritually, you must acknowledge that your salvations have made you a member of what Paul calls the true or spiritual Israel in Romans chapter 2. Physically, we must stop separating ourselves from God's people, Israel. We must stop. 
We must begin to bless them by standing with them, loving them, recognizing that there are elder brothers and sisters in the faith. I mean, I can tell you confidently from personal experience that what awaits when we do these things is like the difference between leaving childhood behind and becoming an adult. It's the difference between mere survival and productive living. Okay. Let me close with an anecdote told to me by, by my dear friend Bob Layton, who's a board member of Seed of Abraham Ministries and our Saturday evening worship director. This was a dream or a vision that he experienced many years ago. He told me about it many years ago. That he says changed the course of his life and direction of his ministry forever. And it's exactly about the opportunity for we Rahabs to move from outside the camp of Israel to inside. Bob's an old surfer dude. So there's no better place for him than on a beach, breathing in that salty air. I see a lot of shaking heads out there. They, they know Bob. You know Bob. So not surprisingly, his vision was that he was walking on a completely empty and pristine beach one day when he happened upon a large picnic table and spread out upon its white tablecloth was a cornucopia, a veritable feast of the most beautiful and perfect fruits and vegetables and breads in huge quantities, more than he'd ever seen. It was an endless bounty. But there was nobody there. Not one person was sitting at that table eating all of this delicious food. And Bob said he had this feeling of immense sadness. It just engulfed him. And he started crying uncontrollably. I mean, what was so incredible and beautiful and available for the taking suddenly seemed so depressing because it was just all going to waste. So Bob asked the Lord, who was walking along with him, where this feast came from and where were all the people? Why was nobody eating it? And the Lord told Bob, I provided it for my people. And then instructed Bob to approach the table and to lift up a corner of that tablecloth and take a peek underneath. And lo and behold, there were all the people. Christians. A huge number of them were sitting below. And they were all scooping up the sand with their hands, pressing it up to their mouths and saying, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this delicious? And Bob asked them why they were sitting underneath that table eating the sand when they could but look up and partake of this bountiful feast that the Lord had prepared for them right above their heads. And they answered, yes, we know but we're satisfied with what we have. Then the vision ended as abruptly as it began. We'll continue the book of Joshua next week.